Your support of the Candid Frame over the past 12 years has been invaluable to us. You have not only helped us produce over 400 episodes, but your donations directly helped us to create the Candid Frame app and making it available for free. We are now proud to announce the release of a new way for you to listen to TCF. We have released a new skill that is compatible with Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. Using voice commands, you can listen to the latest episodes, jump forward and back, and if you stop listening partway through an episode, it will remember where you left off. And like the Candid Frame app, it's free for users in the U.S. and Canada. In the coming months, the skill will be available in other countries. And I'll let you know when those become available. You can help and continue to support the work that we do here by contributing as little as $2 a month to our Patreon campaign. You not only help us to meet our cost of production, but provide us the means to improve the quality of the show and do so much more. Contribute today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. This is Ibadi and X, and this is The Candid Frame. Gather a group of photographers together, and often the conversation revolves around gear. And sure, equipment plays an important role in what we do. And I love finding out about the latest technology as much as the next guy. But it's the conversations that revolve around process, about how people do what they do, that often provides me the greatest insight. Learning how another photographer thinks, sees, and shoots can give me a perspective on my own approach, especially if I and the other photographer share a particular genre of photography. I've known Nancy Lair for several years now, and I've had the pleasure to see her evolution as a photographer. It's something that I appreciated all the more when I had the opportunity to read her new book, Life Happens in Color, A Street Photography Manifesto. I came away from reading the book feeling that I not only had a clearer perspective on how I do things, but some options of how I might approach things a little differently the next time I go out to photograph. I really enjoyed the conversation that you are about to hear, not only for what I learned about Nancy, but also what I learned about myself. All right. Well, Nancy, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you again. And it's a pleasure to be on again. Thank you for sending me a copy of your your book. Having written several myself, I know it's quite the daunting task, but uh, kudos for not only you know, thinking of the idea, but actually seeing it to completion. There's something to be said for just being able to finish something like this. So kudos. Thank you. Um, the, the title's very interesting. It's like Life Happens in Color. And I like uh, the way that you, your subhead is a street photography manifesto. Like you're making a big declaration and, and you know, sort of putting your stake in the ground and just saying, this is it. It's, tell me about the title and, and why you wanted to express that as... Uh, a strong theme that, that, that pervades the book. Yeah, I was putting my stake in the ground. It, and it grew out of a, a restlessness and maybe even a frustration, maybe even an anger of what a lot of people were talking about in street photography. And there's a lot of talk about street photography with a very narrow scope around black and white, around shadows and light. And, and I felt that that left out a whole lot of street photography and a whole lot of the stuff that I do, 
around, you know, that's a little, maybe a little more documentary, maybe a little more travel, but still about just showing, you know, candid scenes uh, with compelling story. So that's, that's how I got to those. It started out a street, man, a street photography manifesto because it was taken the ground. And then, you know, with a little bit of editorial advice from friends and, and others, um, we, I ended up with Life Happens in Color because that's the other thing that you know my photography from several years now that I've always been very attracted to color and color scenes. And when people say, have you tried that in black and white? You know, I said, no, life happens in color. <laughs> well, I think one of the, the things is, is that it's so much more difficult to produce really effective street photographs in color because I think I think the the major problem is that people are not considering color when they're making their compositions. They're looking at the moment that's playing out in front of them, but they're not necessarily paying attention to, you know, the colors that are within the composition or how colors play off of each other. And I think it's probably one of the harder things to do and it's just easier to strip away the color and just deal with it as a black and white. Yeah, and 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 I sort of realized early on that I'm actually maybe drawn to good color kinds of situations more than I'm drawn to good light kinds of situations. So for me, it's very intuitive to be attracted to the scene that has the good color combinations to start with and then start working with it. Whereas I know others are more attracted to the scene that has the good light com right. combinations. So I think it's, it's sort of the way you're built. Well, tell me about developing that eye, because one of the challenges about using color is is the fact that color itself can become the subject. And then when you're doing more documentary, more street work, it's often much more than just the singularity of color in the composition. You're thinking about how the moment is playing out. You're thinking about light and shape. You're thinking about the interaction, the interaction between people or an individual within the environment. You know, tell me about the development of, of your eye to be able to use color as as a tool rather than just a subject unto itself. Sure. I'm a big proponent of the compose and wait sort of school of street photography where I'll see a scene and say something's going to play out here. Or maybe I'll see an interesting subject, but then follow them into a place where I know something good can play out. So I think when I first find the initial scene and do my initial sort of framing, I'm thinking about the color combinations just to start with more, like I say, more, maybe more than the lighting situations. And then, and then, yeah, you, you have, you don't know what's going to play out within that scene. And it might be some jarring sort of color thing happening, or it might not be. And, and that's just, maybe that is an extra layer of, of difficulty I add to it, but color adds so much emotional dimension that, I just can't see leaving it out. And I'm also I'm also not not comfortable with the fact that just thinking, oh, I'll take this and then I'll convert it to black and white later. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, I need to see it and have it play out in front of me. So I, I, I gravitate towards the scenes that work in color. And then, and then I work those scenes. But how do you avoid the, the the trap of color being such a focus that you know the rest of the image doesn't you know doesn't follow suit? Because I, I see a lot of pictures where I see what drew someone to make the photograph. They had some really strong, saturated, or vibrant color, mm -hmm. but the but the rest of the image isn't. There's no there there. It just sort of falls apart after that. So how do you balance it out with what you're gravitating to, and then ensuring that you build the shot 
with all the other elements that really are necessary for a good photograph? So the, the terse answer is you just have to do that, right? <laughs> but the not but the not so terse answer is so that's sort of sort of if there's two things that I think about directly, and these are like the first two points of my manifesto is the story and that the composition and the color has to all work together. And I think that that is, that's probably the hardest thing, whether it's in black and white or color, the hardest thing is, is how do you evaluate that you're actually telling an interesting story versus, you know, a banal everyday scene. And I think that's really difficult to do. So I, I do, I, I do always think about those two things and then framing and composition and everything else that goes inside it and moment and stuff like that. But I, I always have to think about those two things. And sometimes you walk away with images that are just about color or just about a gesture and they just don't end up past the cutting room floor, as it were. But you have to take those in order to get the ones that do pull it all together. But well, it's really important. Yeah, let's talk about one image specifically. Uh, there's mm-hmm. an image in your book that I just am so in love with, which is of the uh, taxi driver that's in the car, uh-huh. and then the neon sign is reflected off of the, the window of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that photograph. I, I mean, I could just stare at it forever. It's so, it's so wonderful. But I think that really speaks to the whole idea of what you're just speaking about. And I'm going to use this image for the picture of, uh, for the blog post for, the, uh, okay. for this episode. So people who are listening to this, if you just go to the candid frame, you'll see the image there. But in line with what we're talking about, Tell me about this image, how, what you responded to initially and how you sort of built the shot and what you felt the story was for this particular photograph. So I always go back to where I was and what I was doing when I took the image. And that helped sort of recreate the story that was going on in my head and the thinking that was going on in my head. So I'd spent the entire day on this mountainside um, shrine in northern Japan called in this town called Yamadera, which means mountaintop or mountainside shrine or something, right? It's very literal translation. And I was tired and we come back down into the valley. So this is all like the shrine, you're, you know, exploring the shrine up and down the mountain and you come back down into the valley and the, you know, it was getting dark and I saw this taxi. There's a line of taxis. So we were going back to the train station to take the local train back to the nearest town where we were staying. So I saw this line of taxis, two or three taxis lined up underneath the train station. I said, isn't that interesting how the reflection of the awning is playing against the windshield of the taxi? And there's a there's a culture, and I'm always looking for how do I capture the culture of a place, and and what's the place telling me? And so there's this culture of Japan taxi drivers, where they're always dressed in suits and and pretty formal, and even when you get in, they put on their gloves. And so there's this taxi driver being illuminated by the light, and his that sign actually says for hire, I think. And so I just I took several shots in several different ways, you know, till I got. So it was, I was attracted by the story first. The color was, was good because you have the red and the brown. So the color was good. So I, I could stay there. And then it was just working the scene and then, you know, getting the gesture of him, sort of the bored taxi driver waiting for his fare, but still sort of dressed way more formally than we would think of taxi drivers in the United States, for example. And, you know, just, just working it to get this framing. 
And it's really interesting hearing you uh, explain that because I color is, is a consideration for me. But if if I were to, if I were to break it down, it's like the third consideration for me. Like you mm-hmm. said before, it's like first I'm looking for a light and shadow, right? And then I look for line and shape, then color. Um, in order, and that's just the way I sort of have broken it down in 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 my head. But it's it's really interesting how you're prioritizing story because for me it's also a consideration but i'm always trying to discern the effectiveness of the shot graphically mm-hmm. and then once i've you know processed that then i can figure out about okay what's the story where is the gesture where is the telling you know the telling flourish that will help to complete the shot so are you almost immediately after you've found yourself being drawn to color immediately jumping into what's the story here is that the question you ask yourself okay yeah i am Mm-hmm. So, so you had you had Michael David Murphy on uh, mm-hmm. not too long ago, and he used to do these things, these one paragraphs called unphotographable. Have you read any of those? No, I don't think so. I'm sure it's his. I'm sure he did these ten years ago, maybe longer. And they're like these one sentence paragraphs that are extremely rich in 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 adjectives and the like. And when I read those, I said, I want to build those pictures where he said they were unphotographable, you know, with a woman in a pink jogging suit sitting mm-hmm. in an Atlanta airport at six o'clock in the morning in a smoke filled room, you know, waiting for her flight to Atlanta. Right. So he adds all those little details. And I said, you know, that's what I want my pictures to be. So, yes, yeah, so a story is story and color. The first two things I think about. Yeah. Then there's a perfect segue for the one of the chapters that you talk about, where you talk about adjectives, about composition mm-hmm. being additive. Why, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that, that whole concept? Well, sure. So a lot of people think about composition as being reductive. And you'll find hundreds of, of references to this. You know, if you like look up how to make a good image, keep keep removing things from the frame until you have your single subject. And again, when you think about story, that doesn't make for a very interesting story. <laughs> so I always think about the composition as being additive. And I think uh, Joel Meyerowitz talked about it as well in, in, in your last podcast that I listened to. And so I'm always looking for, well, there's the subject and there's the gesture and interaction he may or may not make. Or the, um, but what else tells the story all around this? So we recognize it really strongly in literature. Um, you know, you think about the first paragraph of Tale of Two Cities or, you know, really colorful haikus. Uh, my favorite haiku is this Busan haiku. And, and it goes, they swallow clouds and spit out blossoms, the Yoshino Mountains. Very simple, very elegant, but hugely deep in story. I mean, if I could build that image, I would build that image. And it's more than just a beautiful landscape of trees in bloom. There's got to be something that tells you about sort of the interaction of the weather with the trees and the light and everything if you're a landscape photographer. So... That's what I think about in terms of adjectives. It's like you have to add more stuff in order to complete this story, but it can't be distracting stuff. It's got to work. Yeah, and there has to be a level of precision that, much like the haiku, where you, where the, you know, where, where the poet is really trying to be very uh, selective but considerate of each and every word 
in relationship to each other within the poem, so is the photographer who is having to consider all the elements that he's, he or she is choosing to introduce in the frame. And I think that's one of the sort of the, the difficulties that comes in play when you want to look through the, through the camera in this way, because I talk about ownership of the frame. Yeah. You know, whenever I teach constantly about how you have to be considering not only the subject, but the elements in the foreground, in the background, even the small, you know, peeling of paint on a wall or, you know, the hole in someone's jacket. All of those things are, are basically words in a poem. Mm hmm. And what do you include and what do you exclude? But don't exclude so much so that you just have like a single street portrait. Unless that's what you're trying to do, right? Give them the whole context. It's, it's almost like environmental portraiture all the time. Well, my, my path to getting to that was I, I, I subtracted stuff for a long time to the point I was doing abstracts just to basically just get rid of stuff, get rid of stuff. And then slowly after I felt like I had nailed that, I started going, oh, how much more can I include, right? And right. it's like backing up, including more stuff in the frame to the point where I'm like going, how much can I throw into this frame before it falls apart? And That's right. And so is, was that the, the same experience for you? Yeah. In fact, I remember when I first started doing more street photography, I had to essentially wean myself back in focal lengths. So I started with like 70 millimeters and then I moved to 50 millimeter for a while and then finally to a 35 millimeter. But I couldn't just like all of a sudden put on a 35 millimeter lens and go out and make anything that held together. Um, I, I really did have to sort of weed myself back that same way. So I think you're right. I think you have to build up to it and you have to realize why you're doing it. And all these things have to work together. Yeah. Yeah, just recently I realized I, I've been liking the perspective that I get through my phone, which is about 28 millimeters. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I, I, I have to start shooting with a 28. I mean, I've, I've done so much with a 35, but I just like the, the, the dynamic of the 28 and the fact that it challenges me to do just what we're talking about. It's like, okay, now there's so much more in the frame. How can I make it work? And I'm mm -hmm. excited by the challenge of that rather than just falling in the trap of like, well, this is just the way I work. 35 is, is just it's just my lens. Right. Right. Talk about those moments when you feel like, God, I could keep doing this, but something is pushing me to take a risk to to risk failure, which is certainly what you do any anytime you change things up in that way was. Tell me about that that process. Was it difficult for, for, for you to be able to do that? Uh, yeah, it's it's always difficult going out to shoot. Just a famous phrase, you know, street photography, 99% imperfection. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people sometimes ask me after I speak on, on photography at the local, you know, uh, photo uh, clubs that I get invited to, they say, is that the only picture you took? And I'm saying, no, you should see all the mess around this one photograph. So it's always like that. And sometimes you go out and you get nothing. And sometimes you come back and, and you hit some really amazing, um, exciting situation and it just plays out beautifully. Uh, so that's the challenge. I love really complicated puzzles. So that's the way my mind works. And that, that makes it a, the challenge for me. I open the, the 
chapter on composition is additive with this picture of this guy repairing his truck mm-hmm. in downtown Los Angeles in front of a parking meter. So it tells you some things like how many people do you see repairing their cars in front of a parking <laughs> meter? You know, and he's got this rip down his pants and his, you know, his his boxers are showing and they're they're checkered, you know, they're plaid. And and he's got this can under the truck and it's all those little components together that makes it more than just, oh, a guy's repairing his truck with tattoos and ripped pants. It's like, oh, and he's on a, you know, he's on a downtown street somewhere and, you know, there's a guy looking on and what's going on here, right? So it asks, makes you ask more questions about how did this guy end up on the street repairing his truck? So that's what I look for. And, and, you know, just how much can you put in until it just falls apart? And sometimes they fall apart and sometimes they don't. You, you talked that your approach is, is something, is a sort of amalgam of street photography and documentary. So how do you, how do you define both? How do you differentiate between the two when it comes to your work or do you? I try not to. I think a lot of my mentors have been more documentary photographers, uh, not geo kinds of photographers. Um, but I know people who say, no, street photography, you have to go out with the com- completely no intentions of conveying any sort of message. And it's just about the pattern and gesture you see in daily life. But I feel more compelled to say something about society. And maybe it's because I grew up you know, with the influence of the 60s and 70s, and it was, which is a very turbulent time in American society and American culture, especially, you know, when you're in your young teens and early 20s. And I just, you know, that's always been a part of me to, to be able to say something about what's going on in society. So that always sort of draws me more to the edge of I'm documenting something about society as it's happening today. And when you look back at it, I'm hoping that when you look back at it in 20 years, you can either 50 years, you can either make a statement about, boy, nothing's changed. Or my God, look at how everything's changed. Did they really do it that way then? Or boy, I really see the turn of the century, 20th century, 21st century, I guess, in that image or, or whatnot. You know? So that's just part of me. So when you look at, take a look at your work, what sort of themes, ideas, or motifs do you see coming up over and over again along the lines of what you just spoke of? Well, I'm always trying to capture the culture I feel when I'm at the place. So I do a lot of work in L.A., but I've also been doing at least one foreign travel trip a year. And when I go to those different places... I want to capture what I feel is different about that culture. So if it's in Japan, there's a very much of a formalism in Japan. And so I'm always trying to capture that. Um, if it's in Los Angeles, there's very much of, of this sort of, you know, downtown L.A., it's, it's got this real dichotomy of what it's doing for bringing in visitors and bringing in commerce and the local people, the local residents of the area, and and they're quite different. And so, and then there's a lot of, there's a ton of history in Los Angeles around the hotels that were there and how they've changed. And now they're, you know, sort of people who are making their way out of Skid Row instead of addressing sort of the local salesmen that would visit LA to, to 
to sell their wares in the 30s and 40s when they were built. Mm -hmm. So I'm always trying to think about what's the culture, what's the story, what's the sort of historic story or the societal story that this place is representing, you know, in in what I'm trying to capture. And, you know, it's some of it's in what I end up editing out or editing in to what I show. And some of it is is what I look for when I'm actually photographing. But but a single gesture doesn't do it for me anymore. It's too simple. It's too simple. Yeah. I want to tell the story of the place. I want to tell all the different components of of, you know, what it's like in this one corner of downtown Los Angeles or out in the middle of nowhere in Mongolia or, you know, in a small town in Japan or something. Do you find that this provides you a certain consistency in terms of how you see that regardless of where you are in the world, whether you're, you know, in Santiago in downtown or you're in, you know, you're in Italy, that there's, that you're seeing with a certain level of consistency? Because, I ask that because sometimes when, you know, one travels to an exotic country, a place is very different, there's a, a shift that can happen as a result of all this new stimuli stimuli that can change the way that you're seeing and that you're shooting. Do you find that that's not an issue for you? I do find that there's much more consistency um, as, I, as I began to shift my thinking towards what's the culture and how do I capture the culture? Absolutely. Because I'm not just there to capture what's different. So, so when I first, so I was on a trip to Japan, and we were in Tokyo, which was the first place we landed, and then we went sort of into the outskirts. And I looked up, and you know, the first place you sort of visit is some local um, shopping mall area. And I looked up, and I said to somebody I was with, "It says, so boy, it's really hard to actually differentiate one place from another place." these days because you see a lot of the same thing. And then I realized that it is and it isn't. So there's what it, what I need to look for is what part of that culture is having the influence on what you're seeing. Um, so in Japan, there's this very much a sense of politeness and formalism. And you even see that in the middle of a shopping mall. There's also this amazing food culture that you see in their shopping malls. So we might have like a food court in a shopping mall in in the United States. But in Japan, they have entire floors of food malls, Mm. you know, just and it's like, okay, so this is a food mall. And you can imagine doing like food malls throughout the world (laughs) because they all have them, but they're all very different. But they all have some consistency to them. So I do, I think about, you know, what are the consistencies and then what are the differences? And I try and capture a little bit of both in each one of those pictures. Hey, 
Hey, I'm going to be teaching two photography workshops in the coming months. In each two-day workshop, I walk you through my own process for seeing, evaluating a scene, and how I use those same principles to call and edit images in Lightroom. Each day ends with in-depth critiques of the images produced by each student and provides a great way to jumpstart your photography. The first workshop is being offered through the Los Angeles Center of Photography and will be held on May 5th and 6th. The second workshop will be held as part of Street Photo San Francisco on June 9th and 10th, which is part of a week-long dedication to street photography. Find out more and sign up by clicking on the links in the show notes or visit the Candid Frame website. Your, your book has photographs that are you know, straight street photographs, and then there are others that are more documentary in which you're actually... Uh, engaged to some extent with the people that you're photographing, and sometimes you're actually in their in their homes while you're you're photographing them. And how does that level of intimacy affect how you see, but more importantly, how you shoot? Yeah. So when when I'm 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 so I think a lot of that one of the ones you're talking about is um, I was in Mongolia recently and I went to Mongolia because I said, this place is going to be different. Um, and it was, and it was very different. Um, so we would go and we would visit different people's homes. And when we went in, there was a lot of time spent doing formal portraits and talking to them and, Oh, can you move into the light? Can you move out of the light and stuff? But I was always, Always in the back of my mind, I had made this rule for myself almost from the moment I landed. I was going to take candid shots, even when we were in their houses. I was going to take the in-between shots. And this is what I do with my family, too, by the way. I was going to take the in-between shots. So I still approach it as if I hadn't been there and they hadn't been just posing for me. And I wait for the family to, to break up or I wait for them to stop paying attention to us and do something else and, and try and get those interactions between them that are a little more authentic to, um, to their just natural life. Well, on on that point, um, if you don't mind talking about it, I know that Chick uh, a little while back, your husband had a health crisis. Yeah. Um, which was real challenging for further both of you. And I I know that you did photograph, um, some aspects of that. Um, to tell me about photographing that with, you know, the sort of the, sen- the sensibility that we've been talking about, but with something with such close proximity emotionally. Yeah, so he was sick and he had this uh, disease called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which causes um, the connection between your brain and the nerves. Well, it actually causes a disintegration of your nerves. So after about the first two weeks, he was paralyzed. Um, and this is a very vibrant, healthy, um, you know, vivacious person. And I didn't do any photography for the first two weeks. I was just too freaked out. Um, trying, we were trying to figure out what was wrong. It took a long time to get to a diagnosis. But then once we got to a diagnosis and, and we started treatment, I started doing photographs. And since I was with him every day, most of the photographs could be taken at the in-between moments. They weren't like, okay, let's take our selfie today. Mm-hmm. It was to try and capture, you know, how difficult was physical therapy that day? What was the new achievement of the day? So, you know, like the first time he stood up, even though it was only for maybe 
five seconds. You know, look, you're moving your legs better. You're holding a spoon and you're feeding yourself. And it was sort of a progression of milestones and just being around him every day and just just taking the, the photography. I think you learn. I also did a, a, um, a project with my parents over the course of a four-day weekend where I was with them about six hours every day or maybe longer, about three or four hours in the morning and three or four hours at night. And after about the first two hours where they said, stop taking pictures already, they just <laughs> forgot about me. And it became these these interspersed moments of talking and just being with them as as a person. And then you'd get tired of that even when you're with people you know you're married to you don't are you're not always talking you're sometimes just sitting on the couch together but alone and um and in those moments I would start to photograph again and I think I approach both my intimate personal projects the same way I approach when I'm out on the street even though I don't know these people at all and and I try and and I try and do that I I it's one style. It's one way of thinking of thinking about the moment and the context. Now, sometimes I'll probably make up a lot of stories about the people I see on the street. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's personal, I know exactly what's going on. Um, but, but I do, I, I use the same techniques both ways. And that's how I got all these candid photos, even though we were in the person's home and we had just been talking to them and they were talking to us and showing off the way they, they, they live and the way they work and what they did and what they were proud of. When that sort of conversation is over, you're free sort of to let the situation play out as if you're strangers, but you're not. I just finished reading um, an interesting book by Larry, uh, Larry Fink yeah. uh, about composition and improvisation. And one of the questions that he asked uh, his students, which I thought was really interesting, he would look at a photograph of, of a person that the person had made a photo made an image of, and he would ask them, "Do you like this person?" You know, and he was po- based posing the question of how do you, what do you feel about the person or the moment that you're photographing? Because mm-hmm. he felt like that 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 feeling was so integral into uh, his work. That, that he was really pushing people to really think beyond the sort of, sort of emotional distance that a photograph can sometimes have and really challenging people to think about, well, how do you feel about what you're seeing, about who you're seeing? Do you like them? Do you dislike them? Because all of those things inevitably infuse the photograph. And I want to ask you in terms of your experience photographing your parents and photographing your husband, and how you felt about them, did that influence at all how you experienced and photographed people who were either strangers or who you didn't really know uh, very well, but who you were spending time with and photographing? That's that's interesting. Um, I think I always approach photographing people with the perspective of, I like them. I don't try and show you know, if there's something that's, that's like, oh, look at how angry they are. I guess I'm not typically drawn to that. Mm-hmm. But so has, so, so my street photography certainly has infused my personal projects, but my personal, like really personal projects, but it has my personal, uh, 
projects infused how I think about my street photography? I don't know. It's a good question. I was thinking about Larry Fink um, and his book, Social Graces, mm-hmm. where he does exactly, you know, this, this thing we're talking about where he, so, so the book has two sets of photographs that get interspersed in sets, one of a family in the South somewhere and one of sort of high society in New York. And in both cases, he's, it's, it's repeatable visits over sometimes years, I think, with the same people. He clearly knows the family. They're, they're clearly with him, but they're taken as if they're total candidates. Right. Mm-hmm. And on, on both sides. Um, and I think that's the style I'm thinking about. Um, but, but I don't, I, I don't know how, how the two things infuse each other. And something that I'll think about as I go to Italy and try and photograph the culture of Venice. Yeah. Cause I, when I, cause I've been thinking a lot about my own work and where I'm trying to go to. And, and it's, it's really interesting to see how sometimes my, my evolution and how I'm changing is not something that I can verbalize at any given point. I just know how it feels. And that's, and that's all I have to go to. If someone asked me to sort of explain myself, I would be at a loss, especially if I'm in the midst of it. It's, it's one thing to look back at the work and then go, okay, this is what was happening here. But like in, when you're in the midst of it, it's really hard to be able to discern and be able to explain to someone when, you, you know, when you're in the midst of transforming yourself in that way. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think it takes time for it to coalesce. I mean, this whole book has been rattling around in my brain for a couple of years. I know that there's something I wanted to write, but I, you know, couldn't get it started, couldn't get a cohesive outline around it. And I think I, I got somewhere where I said, okay, this is how I'm thinking now. I don't know how I'll be thinking in a year or two years from now about photography. Um, it is a journey. What did you learn about yourself as a result of uh, writing the book? What surprised you? I think, I think I was able to really coalesce this notion I was talking about earlier that no matter where you go in the world, people are the same. People have the same needs. They, they eat, they sleep, you know, they celebrate, they're in despair, they paint their houses, they decorate, um, they, you know, and no matter where you go, you're going to see that. And I think I was able to coalesce sort of the next phase of what I want to do, which is really take photographs that show how people all over the world, whether it's a, a more wealthy society or a less wealthy society, um, have have these sort of same needs and and how they express it. So like the, 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 there's a chapter on travel and I actually feel like I, I debated a lot about putting it in or taking it out because it's not very mature in my thinking about it, but I know there's something about what I wanted to show about these scenes in all these different places and how there's something relatable to it in your own life, in your own town even though all these scenes very much can be identified with the town they're actually in. Yeah. 
Well, tell us briefly how, how you work. What, what equipment do you work with? Do you keep things to a, a, a minimum? Why don't you explain, you know, what, what that's about for you? Yeah, so I started using the Olympus Micro Four Thirds cameras, I don't know, five or six years ago. I always, so I always had two cameras. So I'm, I'm, I'll say relatively new to photography from a formal perspective. I mean, I always took photographs. My father was a great photographer and, and, you know, he would lean over when I was very young. I remember him leaning over and saying, take pictures with people in them. (laughs) (laughs) Think about that. Right. So I always took pictures all the way, you know, I have pictures from when I was nine and 10 years old and I always took pictures, but it wasn't really till the last 10 or 12 years that I really started thinking about it as a discipline of taking pictures and and started studying with, with people and met you and and the like. And, but I always had two cameras. Um, since that time I had a big DSLR, which was, I was shooting Canon at the time. And I always had some sort of small point and shoot. And I always noticed that the pictures I took with the DSLR were pretty formal. And the pictures I took with the smaller point and shoots had more liveliness in them and they were a little more unpredictable um, as if I had a different sense about me when I was shooting so I was actually looking for some system where where I could bring those two things together and so one of the one of the cameras I had was the Olympus EPL2 which that'll tell you about what year this was and I said you know I really like this camera I think it's pretty much the same sensor as it was until they just came out with the very latest Olympus models, to be honest. I said, I really like this camera, but the ergonomics of this camera just drive you crazy. (laughs) You're always touching the wrong buttons and, you know, it's too small. And so I said, if they ever fix the ergonomics of this camera, this is where I'm going. And when they came out with the EM5, that's when I said, I I took it and I said, I'm going to shoot with this for six months solely and and if I like it I'm going to sell all my other gear and and I liked it so I I moved to the Olympus right then and at that time there were some zooms but they weren't very high quality you know they were kit kit level zooms so I was really sort of focused into I'm going to use this Olympus you know micro four thirds camera I'm going to use fixed fixed focus length fixed focal length lenses they had like really beautiful fixed, what would be equivalent to a 35 millimeter, a 50 millimeter, a 90 millimeter. And that's what I had. And that's what I sort of spent maybe a year and a half shooting with. And that changed a lot about how I saw the world, how I was able to sort of see a scene I wanted to capture and get to the right point to capture it and the like. And I've just sort of stick stuck with the Olympus system as they've, continue to improve and um, add more features. And, you know, now you can almost do sport shooting with them if you want to. Um, so, so that's what I shoot. When I'm on the street, I'll typically have two cameras. I'll have a 35 millimeter and a 90. So I can do sort of what now looks like my standard sort of framing. Mm-hmm. And then um, if I want to do some sort of 
uh, street portrait or if I want to do or if, or if it's just somewhere where I can't really reach into it, um, I'll do that. Um, I They do have some really good fixed aperture zooms now. Um, and I have been using those on some of my travels. Sometimes, like especially like if you're in a garden or museum, you can't get always to the place you want. So a zoom is very handy. <laughs> I'll admit, a zoom is very handy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I travel, I don't, I, I usually have my X100S, but when I'm on, on assignment for something, I usually use a zoom just for the flexibility that it, that it gives me because I'm primarily working with one camera and have one as a backup in case something happens. But, you know, I, the days of going back and forth between two cameras is, is I find it a little bit too, too distracting. I just, just work with this one thing. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, I always find that, you know, you want to, especially if you're newer to street photography, um, you want to keep the number of variables that you have to change to a minimum. So you're thinking about focus and framing first mm-hmm. for me. And then if I have to, Think about framing more than just, and you're going to have to move around anyway because you have to get the right, even with a zoom, you can't just sit in one place. You have to move right, left, up, and down to get the right interrelationship between objects. And so, but the zoom is just like one more thing. It's like, okay, oh, there's one more thing. Oh, yeah, I have to think about aperture and shutter speed and ISO. Oh, and focal length too. So I think if you cut that out, then you can think about color instead. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, I think I'm going to go with um, Larry Fink. I saw him at the Los Angeles Center for Photography was it there? Or you had done a, a panel and he was speaking. Oh, right. Yeah, was, that was in Miami. Mm-hmm. I was in Miami. Yeah. And and I said, this guy's got a way of describing what he does that I need to learn more about. And and as I dug into it, his book, Social Graces, is very much the kind of thinking that I like to think about and you know, something I can really learn from to advance my level of thinking about this sort of crossover between documentary and street photography and the way he juxtaposed these two stories. And then he's just got, and then um, I think you just did a review of the the Aperture book. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then you can really see more of the way he thinks and thinks about photography. So Larry Fink was a really good introduction for me to start thinking deeper about those kinds of topics. Yeah, he is awesome. And quite the character. Yes. <laughs> well, Nancy, thank you so much for, uh, for appearing on the show again. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks to Nancy for sharing her time and story. You can find out more about her and her work by visiting inancyimages.com. And if you want to order the book, click on the link in the show notes where you can purchase either a softcover or PDF version of the book. And you can show your support of The Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to listen to us for the very first time. And that can make all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do it today. 
Thanks to MikeS77 for his five-star review. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us not only to meet the cost of production for the show, but allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website or in the show notes. Thanks to Pierre Duquer and Sandra Reed for their recent contributions. I can't thank you enough. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at X. And this is X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>